to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Sinai. I'm an adjunct lecturer in public policy and a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. Um, and I'm super fired up to be here on a Friday morning. A uh, really fascinating topic uh, with some of the most amazing panelists you'll ever meet. Uh, but let's start with some quick uh, questions. Uh, who here is Harvard Kennedy School? Uh, who here is uh, from another Harvard school, college, business school, uh, other part of Harvard University. Does Berkman count? Berkman counts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Berkman affiliate. Right? Uh, MIT tech community just walked in off the street, was looking for Chipotle. <laughs> okay, awesome. All are all are welcome. Uh, hashtag today is HKS GovTech. Uh, so this is. Uh, sponsored by the Shorenstein Center, the Center for Public Leadership, and the Ash Center, three research centers at Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, very grateful for their support. Uh, this is going to be a ton of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been having a national conversation uh, about policing and criminal justice, uh, a national conversation about race. Uh, so I think this is really uh, going to be uh, an interesting discussion. We're also in the age of big data, and that's almost overused. People say that calling something big data is almost passe sometimes uh, because it's become such a marketing term. Uh, but in my other life, I'm a, I'm a venture capital investor. Uh, all of our companies are using data in a variety of really fascinating ways. And in, in the public sector, specifically in criminal justice and in policing, uh, software and data are also making uh, tremendous differences uh, in, in kind of how police and the criminal justice system do their work, uh, but is also informing uh, the relationship between citizens and police department. And we see that very clearly with video uh, and, and, uh, and all of the uh, incidents over the past couple of years uh, that have helped uh, propel this national conversation uh, about inequity in, in criminal justice. So I have the coolest panel, and I'm going to uh, try and introduce them and do, do justice uh, to their background. Um, but they will help me if I mess this up. Uh, so immediately, I, to my left, I have Cynthia Rudden, who's an associate professor of statistics at MIT uh, in the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory um, and at Sloan, the business school, and directs the Prediction Analysis Lab. So she knows what's going to happen going forward. Um, she, she previously was an associate research scientist at uh, Columbia University and a postdoc research fellow at NYU, uh, undergrad degree from University of Buffalo, uh, with three separate outstanding senior awards from physics, music, and mathematics, PhD in applied computational math from Princeton, um, and been featured Business Week, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, Wired Science, US News, World Report, Slash.CIO, Magazine, Boston Public Radio, and on the cover of IEEE Computer. Uh, and what's relevant here is also uh, that she is an advisor to the Department of Justice. She works closely with Cambridge Police Department, uh, advisor to DARPA, the American Statistical Association, 
uh, and just generally a total badass. <laughs> okay. Uh, next we have uh, Clarence Wardell, who is uh, currently with the U.S. Digital Service in the White House. Uh, he, he just joined there. Uh, previously, he was a Presidential Innovation Fellow working on commercialization and data initiatives uh, at the U.S. Department of Energy. And in his spare time, he <laughs> co-organized the White House Police Data Initiative, which we'll hear a ton about today. Um, and previously, Clarence was a research scientist with CNA Corporation, uh, the Safety and Security Group, which provided uh, analytical support to emergency management and law enforcement organizations to improve response outcomes. Um, and he's developed several civic-focused software products, including Trivial Impact, a political trivia mobile game, and Tiny Give, a social media-based micro-philanthropy program platform that he co-founded in 2012. He's an affiliate with the Berkman Center, um, uh, has an undergrad uh, computer engineering degree from Michigan and a PhD from uh, Georgia Tech. Uh, and then our third panelist, Nicole Wong, uh, was the uh, US Deputy Chief Technology Officer. She led the development of the White House Big Data Report um, with uh, John Podesta. She was the uh, director of legal products at Twitter. She was a vice president early at uh, Google and was the deputy GC there, and previously was a partner at a prestigious law firm in the Valley. Law firm. <laughs> recovering, recovering lawyer. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, three really uh, different perspectives, I think, on the, on the topic, uh, but, but complementary, right? We go from uh, someone who's actually helping police departments data wrangle and, and build data models uh, to someone who is helping coordinate a lot of the police departments think about this and, and work closely with the Department of Justice to someone who is, is really the architect of the administration's thinking on big data, right? So it's a really fantastic uh, spectrum. Uh, and maybe we'll start, we want to start small and then, or start practical. Uh, not small. <laughs> big data. It's what? all about big data. It's about big data. Why don't, why don't we start on the ground? Uh, Cynthia, it would be great to hear a little bit about what you're doing with the police data, uh, the, the Cambridge Police Department. Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, my interest is in machine learning and data mining, and so I'm building new technologies for uh, using, using data to help with uh, the criminal justice system. So uh, I actually have a couple of slides. So I've been working on two projects, and the first one is can we automatically detect crime series? And this is a project that's joint work with the Cambridge Police Department. Actually, my main collaborator on this project is sitting right over there. <laughs> he, uh, this is Dan Wagner, and he is um, the lieutenant, and he was uh, leading the crime analysis unit at the Cambridge Police Department, and now he's actually at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, and uh, he and I have, have been working on this problem for a while. This is a subspace clustering problem, so I'll tell you a little bit about that. And then the other project that I've been working on is can we predict recidivism? And that is a, a project that has a, a technical component that is interpretable machine learning classification. So let me tell you a, bit, a little bit about um, subspace clustering and uh, detecting crime series automatically. So a crime series is a type of crime pattern defined as a group of similar crimes thought to be committed by the same individual or group of individuals acting in concert. And crime series are important because they happen all the time. Uh, this is, for example, the 2012 annual crime report from the Cambridge Police Department 
And in the report, they, they actually show where the different patterns of crime are. So these are housebreak patterns. And let me zoom into one just so you can see it. And it says, um, in West Cambridge, a pattern of weekend, late night, early morning breaks began in late February in the Spark Street area. All but one involved unlocked rear doors and stolen wallets. The arrest of a crew of juveniles in March eradicated this pattern, but activity reemerged later. So basically what they're telling us is this is, an, this is an MO of a crime series. This is weeknight, early, or weeknight or early morning breaks, Spark Street area, unlocked rear doors, stolen wallets. Okay, so that's the MO of a crime series, modus operandi of a crime series. So the question then is, um, are the six crime series on the map the only ones that happened in 2012? And it's not clear that it's easy to answer that question because how do you find all those crime series? Right, the police department actually, they have crime analysts who sit there for three hours a day and they try to find patterns in, these, in the data. It's like you know, finding a needle in a haystack. And uh, the fact that they keep this very detailed data about crimes and crime series kind of indicates how important these things are. So for instance, they keep track of all kinds of stuff like whether the place was ransacked, uh, what type of premise it is. Is it a ho house, multifamily house, apartment, um, you know, means of entry? Did they pry the door open, shove the door open, force the door open, push in the air conditioner? So we said, well, why don't we try to, you know, th this, is a this is a critical problem in the field of crime analysis. You have people sitting there every day working on this problem, yet less than 14% of housebreaks are, are solved nationwide. So maybe we can use our data mining and machine learning tools to, to, to automatically uh, detect crime series to help with the police or what they do manually. So if you could solve this problem, it would help you understand cr current crime series better. You'd know whether a pattern was in progress, and then you could do something about it. If you don't know it's there, you can't do anything about it. Uh, better attribution of past crimes. Better identification of suspects. If you can link crimes together, you can take the suspect information from one crime in the series and carry it to all the other crimes in the series. And then you'd also have a better understanding of serial crime. And so what we've been, what we were doing is we made, we figured out that this was a subspace clustering problem. That's an interesting story how we figured that out. But basically, uh, a crime series is a cluster of crimes, and the modus operandi is a subspace. It's a set of those aspects of the crimes that are similar to each other. So you only want to cluster on this subspace. You only want to find the crime series that have the same modus operandi. And that's a very specific techni technical problem in the machine learning world. And so we, we as a team were able to figure out that, that this uh, crime series problem mapped into this lovely machine learning problem. And that's how we were able to, to solve it. And we developed some software, and that software was passed to NYPD. Um, OK. So the other project that I have been working on is predicting recidivism. And I've been, I've been, okay, first of all, this is not minority report. I'm not trying to punish people for crimes they haven't committed yet. Um, predicting recidivism has been done since the 1920s. The difference is that now we have lots and lots of data and better machine learning methods. The only issue is that we still have a problem that existed from the 1920s, which is people have to be able to interpret these models. They have to be interpretable. Otherwise, people won't trust them and they won't use them. Like, people don't want to just send some data off into a black box and then get back a prediction, yep, this person's going to commit a crime. They want to know why. So 
what we did was we developed these really these these models and they look like tiny little models that someone developed by hand you know you get two points if you're young or you get two points if you have at least five prior arrests stuff like that and and this model though was developed from data from 33,000 individuals who were who were released from prison in a given year and those point scores were not made up by hand they were designed by a very computationally intensive machine learning method but it looks so tiny, it looks like something you could make up, but it's actually just as accurate as those black box machine learning methods you hear about. So this is for predicting arrest. This model is for predicting arrest for a, for a drug offense. So we can create these models automatically, we can make them specific to given data sets, and we can do them for specific types of crime. And they're interpretable and they're, they're very nice. Yeah, so the models are small enough to fit on a PowerPoint slide, and they're built on the largest publicly available data set on, on recidivism. All right, so that's, that's me. That is a very, very <laughs> cool project, and we're going to get back to, to, to some of those. Clarence, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the, the President's Police State Initiative, what it is, uh, what you've been doing, and, and how it ties in to all of this? Sure. Uh, you have to forgive me. I don't have any slides. Um, I guess uh, the, the backdrop for all of this, um, is obviously, I think, a lot of the headlines that came out of Ferguson in um, August of last year. Um, and then really a lot of the, 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 the grounding for the work for the Police Data Initiative came out of the President's convening of the 21st Century Task Force on Policing. Is everyone here familiar with that? Why don't you tell people yeah. what, what that is? Um, and so, so if you're not, so after, after Ferguson um, and, and several other events, um, uh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, unfortunately, uh, there was um, kind of a growing pressure on the administration to respond to these incidents uh, across the country and to really kind of offer a voice to how do we move forward around police reform efforts. Uh, the president in December of last year convened what he called the uh, 21st Century Task Force on Policing. Um, and the, the, the idea was for this task force to, over a 90-day period, uh, travel the country, hold listening sessions um, from law enforcement, uh, civil liberties groups, uh, citizens, activists, et cetera, to find out um, and of what what should be best practices for a police department in the 21st century with regards to uh, not only fighting crime but actually police citizen relations uh, with the core kind of piece of this is, is building trust um, so after those 90 days the the task force issued a report uh, had 59 recommendations around um, uh, around policing in the 21st century 14 of those recommendations dealt specifically with uh, some combination or aspect of leveraging data and technology uh, to increase transparency and, and build legitimacy and, and, and trust between police and citizens. Um, and so uh, at, the, at the time um, I was, uh, as Nick said, Presidential Innovation Fellow uh, and, and kind of a lot of the work that we were doing kind of um, spearheaded and initiated by, by Nick and his team at CTO's office was around open data at the federal level. Um, and, and getting more federal agencies to share data with this idea that uh, not, not necessarily just transparency per se, but you know businesses and things of this sort could come from um, this liberated data. Um, and it was kind of quite curious to me that we were having this conversation around open data at the federal level. At the same time, one of the, the, the top headlines that kind of came out of, of Ferguson at all was this conversation around the lack of data that we actually currently collect in the U.S. or, or have around police-citizen interactions. Um, 
And, and really the top line there was, we just really don't have good data around officer-involved shootings. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not mandated that um, uh, departments uh, report that, and there's no kind of comprehensive uh, a database of that information. Um, and so one of the, th it, but it was clear that it was, you know, setting what you want to do with the analysis of that aside, it was clear that the lack of that information, um, the lack of that data had a significant effect on how people viewed um, you know, the law enforcement system in this country. You know, how do you hold the system accountable if you don't know what it's doing, right? How do we evaluate how policy, uh, how policy plays out if we're not collecting data around how that impacts real people, right? Um, and so one of the things that uh, we, we decided to, to try to stand up, um, and we weren't actually sure if it was going to work, um, because, I, you know, so I've worked with law enforcement agencies previously, and, and I think uh, one thing, though, is fun that has fundamentally changed with Ferguson is, is agencies now coming to the table and recognizing that the transparency has to be a part of policing practices. And so what we saw actually just looking around the country, even before we were doing anything, we, we could see kind of pockets of, of different agencies trying to be proactive in this space. And so we looked at, uh, there was a big story around Seattle Police Department, and Washington State actually has pretty liberal uh, open records laws. And so there was, a, there was a gentleman from the community who kept FOIA requesting uh, Seattle Police Department for any uh, dash cam and body cam video. And Seattle PD just did not have the capability uh, to to redact that video and, and get it out to the public. And so they actually invited him inside. Said, "All right, you want this information? Help us, help us uh, redact and and and, and release it." Um, the same time in December of last year, uh, the police chief of Dallas Police Department um, released 12 years of officer-involved shooting history down to uh, the incident level, uh, including officer's name race, the same thing for the suspect and the circumstances of those events. And if you go on their, their site, he issued this letter along with that explicitly stating this case for why he was releasing this information, recognizing that um, his department um, loses legitimacy and trust in the community if they are seen as holding back that type of information. Um, and so as we saw kind of these departments around the country kind of on the edge of this, um, we our goal became, you know, how do we start to kind of galvanize these efforts? lift them up, do education um, for departments that aren't familiar with, uh, you know, we kept using this term open data, right? Um, and I think we kind of take for granted a little bit that we, we know what that means, kind of incident level, machine readable, um, publicly accessible, anyone can have it. Um, and for a lot of departments, like that, that concept, is, it's not that they were actively against it, it's, they didn't even know what that meant. You know, we would start conversations with um, talking to departments and say, oh, we're, we're transparent already, we have our annual uh, reports posted in PDFs online, right? And which is, which is great, and, and that's a start. But it's it's moving beyond that. Sure, release the report, but let folks see what's underneath. What what who, so they can do the analysis for themselves. You know, um, and so so with that, we, we launched the the president announced uh, the the launch of the police White House Police Data Initiative in May of last year, um, and it's really kind of two core focus uh, or work streams underneath that. Um, the one I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more is this kind of open data and policing side. Uh, another uh, that my colleague uh, Lynn Overman um, is, is leading is kind of this um, data analysis, internal data analysis piece. And so one of the things we looked around and we saw departments were actually getting really good at using data for predicting crime, right? Uh, but as we started to have conversations with many police departments, we, we found that they weren't actually as good as using that data internally to predict 
who might be some of their problem officers, let alone what types of interventions should be assigned to those officers and whether or not those interventions would even work. Um, and so she's been leading some work uh, where she's worked with UChicago's uh, Data Science for Social Good team. They've been paired with Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. Um, and they've kind of helped look at some of this internal data and help build validated uh, internal accountability uh, early warning systems. Um, it was just quite, quite interesting. You would talk to a lot of these departments and everyone said, oh yeah, we got an early warning system. And you say, well, does it work? So, we don't know. You know. And even if you do a lot of retrospective analysis, a lot of times the officers that were the problem officers that actually got dismissed, they wouldn't have been caught by those systems anyway. And so that piece is how do we get smarter around using data internally um, so that we can head off a problem before it comes. Um, on the open data side, so we, when the president announced the initiative, we, we, we basically found 21 willing departments who were able to commit to releasing at least three data sets around police-citizen interactions. Um, and we were very specific about that. And it was, it was um, we said that's great if you're releasing crime data, um, but what we really want to see is data about policing, right? And so it's officer-involved shootings, it's use of force, it's uh, traffic and pedestrian stops, which are one of the, I guess, more common data sets now. Um, citizen complaints, uh, put it out there, make it accessible, um, and with, with the you know, hope or promise that A, again, it, it, it starts to engender legitimacy within the community, but you can also use that data as a, as a starting point, as a convening force to have those conversations within the community and use that as kind of your source of truth, if you will. Um, and so what we've kind of done from there, we now have, I think, 27 departments participating with the hope of, of ramping up a bit more. Um, uh, the end of this year, but we tried to keep that early number small to identify what what are best practices, what are some of the challenges that these departments are having. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier, sometimes the, the departments are resource constrained. Uh, but one of the things that we did find is a lot of time there are untapped resources within a municipality that departments, you know, for instance, weren't, the city had, might have had an open data portal with the CIO um, and the departments weren't talking to that side, you know, to that, that department or agency. And so just to see uh, those come together and, and kind of help um, unleash some of the, the local resources that were already there. It's been a lot of, a lot of what we've been doing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been the, the primary thrust of the work. Um, I think at the end of the day, kind of again, what underlies all of this is, is, is not that this is an end-all be-all to police reform. It's certainly not. Uh, but we think it's a core component. You know, it, it's something that's, um, I think, more easily doable than a lot of other things. And so why not take the take that off the table early? Um, and then hopefully we'll, we'll see over time that this becomes a, a kind of established part of, you know, um, uh, a 21st century police force, if you will. I think we're moving to greater data-driven government, uh, regardless of the vertical area, of, uh, regardless of the topic. So whether you're interested in, in international development or criminal justice or uh, cybersecurity or whatever your, your topic area is, we're seeing uh, far more uh, data-driven than not just analysis but actual uh, service delivery. Now, uh, moving to Nicole, uh, Nicole, you were the point person uh, for the big data thinking uh, inside the White House. But you also have this fantastic experience uh, working in Google and Twitter and understanding how to think about privacy in the context of, of uh, internet delivered software or, 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 or uh, web products, really. Uh, and then you've also been, been, been working on this issue uh, since you left the White House. I'd love your, your uh, kind of macro 
uh, perspective on this. Yeah, super, Mac. So, hey, thank you, Nick, and, and the Transient Center for hosting this, and for all of you for coming this morning. Um, I have no slides either. I think government just beats, yeah, beats it out of like, We don't do tech at, at the federal level so much. Uh, but we're trying to change that. So maybe next time I'll have slides. Um, let, let me give you a little bit of context, because we really are kind of going from like a very granular of how do you build, the, what data sets you're using, how do you build it, and how do you pull that into a policy orientation. And so let me start with sort of where um, some of the impetus for doing this came from. Uh, when I was at the White House, um, in 2013, I arrived literally the week after the Snowden disclosure started. Um, and so a great deal of my work was around the government use of data, particularly in the area of na national security. Um, but in January, after the White House had completed its review of how does it use its signals intelligence program, the president actually asked us to look at big data generally. And our government has actually been investing in big, big data research for years now. Um, and so what the president wanted to know is like, not just in the national security area, but across sectors and across industries, what are the public policy implications of big data analysis? How should we be thinking about both the problems that might arise from using big data, as well as how can we lean into some of the benefits of big data and really um, sort of ramp those up as well? And, and police, law enforcement, criminal justice was one of the areas he asked us to look at. Um, so that, that, that just sort of sets the table of like, why is the White House here at all <laughs> on these lo very, very local issues sometimes? Um, I was actually uh, doing some of my own research, um, trying to find like women in data science, and I came across one of our earliest data scientists, Ida B. Wells, who was actually doing data science research in criminal justice. So I, I, so I, I thought, oh, I've got to tell this story. <laughs> um, and you were saying how like predictive analytics has been around for at least 20 years. Ida was actually born in 1882, um, and, and she uh, was born of slaves in Missouri, uh, Mississippi. Um, she became a teacher eventually. She eventually became a partial owner of a newspaper. Um, and in 1889, a friend of hers in Tennessee named Tom Moss um, was lynched by a very angry mob. Now, at the time, the general feeling, lynches in the South were fairly common. It was generally believed that those lynchings were probably because of one of two things. Either a black man had raped a white woman, or a black man had murdered a white man. That was the general supposition about why these lynchings were happening. Ida didn't believe that. And so she went in and she read, the, the, as it turns out, the Chicago Tribune published regularly all of the lynchings that occurred over the year. So she went back and read 10 years of the Chicago Tribune's reports. And those reports identified the name of the victim, the nationality of the victim, the charges against them, and the time and place of the lynching, in including like, were, were these people lynched as groups or as individuals? And in going through that data, what she was able to identify is, in fact, when you looked at the charges levied against the people who were lynched, particularly the African-American men, but there were actually some African-American women as well, sort of undercutting the whole, it's all about raping white women problem. Um, charges would range from murder and rape, those were definitely the largest in numbers, um, down to no cause would be given, um, writing an insulting letter, having a bad reputation, and when she started to break those down, putting murder and rape in, in two categories, which then amounted to about 50% over a five-year period of, of the lynchings, 
The other 50% were not in any way related to this thing, and in some of them were not even crimes. And this is using the official data, right? This isn't like, oh, hey, maybe someone skewed that data one way or another to make it look like a murder, but it wasn't murder. This is using the official data of what was reported. And in that way, she actually published a report in her newspaper, um, which got wide circulation, that was data science that said, here's real data that says that our assumptions about why these things are happening are utterly wrong. And, and so like, for me, that was sort of a lesson of like, we certainly want to be using data in, to, to change our criminal justice system, to make sure that real justice is afforded, and to make sure that our communities trust the police to be doing the work that they do. But use, how we use the data and how we think about that data is actually a really important lens to get right in the first place. Um, so let me, having given you that as a premise, um, talk a little bit more about how, uh, at a macro level, we're thinking about data in the, in the criminal justice reform area. Um, and, and I think uh, most folks working in this area think we've now reached a pivot point in terms of thinking about criminal justice. There, there was a, a, an era in, in our um, thinking where tough laws, tough sentencing is going to yield better criminal justice results. Um, and, and looking at the data and having lots of research about what the outcomes have been from a decade or more of, of that approach is that we actually probably need to pivot to a different way of thinking about how we use our resources and how we um, bring justice into communities. So let me give you a little bit of data about that. We have 6.9 million adults under correctional supervision right now. Um, there are over 3,000 jails in the United States 731,000 people are moving through those jails on any given day. Um, that's more than the population of Detroit, by the way. Uh, in 2014, there were more than 11.4 million people who moved through those local jails, 11.4 million, but only about 575,000 of them actually went on to state prison. That means that 95% of the people who were arrested and charged and put in jail in were only in the local jail system. They never actually reached the prison system. And 60% of the jail population is never convicted. They are in their pretrial. They have not actually faced a conviction. So when you look at that, about how broad our incarceration is before even conviction, and then you take a look at some of the demographics <coughs> of the people sitting in the jail. So some studies say that um, local jail populations uh, are largely there for misdemeanor, nonviolent offenses, but they cannot afford the bail to get out. So they could be there for anywhere from two days to two months, because simply because they can't afford bail, which for, for misdemeanor nonviolent is something can be something like as easy as $500 to maybe $2,500, but they are too poor to afford the jail or the bond to be able to, to, to get out of jail. And that has serious implications for their job, their family, their ability to get insurance, their ability to get educational loans, all of that sort of thing. Um, when you also look at those numbers uh, overall in the prison or correctional system population, like 50% of the people have serious mental health conditions. 68% um, have some sort of substance abuse problem. So we're also talking about incarcerating the sick and probably most vulnerable uh, among us. Um, and then in the overall correctional system, like 60% are racial minorities. So, so backing up from that data, like how do we think about that from a policy standpoint? 
what it sure looks like is that we are overwhelmingly jailing the most vulnerable people in our society, the poor, the sick, the minority, um, and the people who are most on the brink that sitting in jail without a conviction um, is most likely to send them over the edge. Uh, it, that tells us a bunch of stuff about ways we ought to start thinking about correcting what we're doing, which is looking at that pretrial assessment period um, about whether those people really are a threat to our community, whether we could release them without bail and believe that they will still appear in court when they need to come back, whether they pose a threat of violence when they get out on bail, even before uh, going through the rest of the process. Um, the, the, and, and it's, so for me, like the justice components of that are really important, but the cost is huge too. So from a public policy standpoint, we spend, uh, in 2007, across the state, federal, local criminal justice system, we spent $228 billion. Maricopa County in Arizona spent 50% of its county budget on criminal justice. That is, that should not be how we are allocating our resources. Um, and, and so again, from both a justice perspective and a cost perspective, using the data to figure out how to get better outcomes overall um, is extraordinarily important. And I think I'll stop there, because like, A, we have super smart people in the room, and as well as on this panel. Just one, one more thing that I thought was really fascinating about the, the White House Big Data Report, which I was honored to contribute to, was, was both the challenges and the opportunities of, of big data uh, in, in education, in discrimination, in, in a whole host of uh, in housing and so forth. Uh, can you speak to uh, a little bit about the challenges, any of the panelists, about some of the uh, challenges and opportunities in, in big data uh, in criminal justice? Yeah, I mean, I'll pick up, and, and actually Cynthia probably can speak even with more detail than I can um, from a technical perspective. I think one of the, one of the key challenges we, we thought about in, in thinking about uses of big data sets in policing in particular is, is a trend towards predictive policing. Um, and, and it ranges, right, between, hey, we know we have a crime series in this neighborhood, we should put more cops on the beat, that's gonna actually lower the likelihood of crime rate or, or, or the ability to catch some, some of those criminals. But it, also in Chicago, they were running a pilot on looking at people's social networks and identifying 400 people that they thought were terribly suspect, either because they had committed a crime or they were associated with someone who committed a crime. And, and, and that doing that kind of use of data needs some sort of framework around what's appropriate use of data, what's, what's the appropriate use for police to think about when they get a, this is predictive, and I almost don't like the word predictive because it makes it sound too sure. Um, I like to think that that kind of data might give them some context about what they're encountering, but not as a prediction of you're a problem. <laughs> um, so that's, that was one of the things that we highlighted in the report as well. Um, well, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunities for how to use big data, but I think there's a, a lack of communication between the people who have access to the data and the people who might be able to help with that. Like, because what we're doing is trying to develop new technologies for, like, if, if you had access to data, you could do this, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think, you know, I, I mean, I've been involved in various panels, and the sense I get is people are frustrated because they don't have access to data, or it's very difficult. They have to 
request permission to access a certain database to do a particular query. You can't do data mining when you have to ask for every single query. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so I think there's, I think right now there's a distance between what we could potentially do if we had access to all that data, find patterns, determine what programs would be best to reduce, you know, crime um, and help people the best, social programs that would help people. Um, th there's that, and then there's, you know, the, the world of actually having access to that data, and I think there's that gap that we need to close. Yeah, I think yeah. that was what was fascinating about, about the work that you showed off here was that it was based upon open data, right? So that uh, this wasn't, let me take your private database in Cambridge or New York and do, do some sophisticated analytics that nobody can see. Well, it's, it's still like that. I mean, the, the, the recidivism project, we used the largest publicly available data set. Yep. For the crime series uh, project, I mean, NYPD, for instance, who's using our code, they won't let us have access to their data. They said, we'll just, we're, we're going to run your code on our data. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. But so our code then is, is the thing that's publicly available. Yep. Right? Well, um, well yeah. hopefully we can help with the open data set yeah. access issue. Um, <laughs> but I would say, like, one of the things in terms of, of, of a challenge, uh, particularly around kind of, you know, predictive policing, big data analytics, um, is this, you know, <clears throat> I think we, we, we should be careful and we have a tendency to kind of, when we talk about data, to, to then put that out there as though this is, this is truth, right? You know, there was, and, and we see it even with the, with the open data piece, right? Like there were decisions made around what, da what data to collect, how it was collected, who to collect it on, yep. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as good as your models are, uh, you know, it's, the, the outcomes are only as good as the data that goes yep. in. So and, let's, and, let's talk about that because, I mean, I bet a bunch of people in the room have, have seen The Wire, I hope. Uh, and, you know, there's the whole juke, juke in the stats uh, theme uh, across uh, many seasons of The Wire. Um, and garbage in, garbage out has been a favorite saying of, of uh, data scientists and computer scientists, uh, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. So what are some of the, the challenges in, in collecting uh, data, uh, some of which is self-reported, uh, by by either the citizen or the police officer, uh, or the or uh, part of the criminal justice system, uh, but other parts are citizen uh, created with video, which has kind of had it kind of created this whole new element. Uh, and data is not just just ones and zeros and, and names and and and, and uh, race and so forth, but it's it's also this tremendous uh, explosion of video that can be come from cell phones or from increasingly uh, uh, body cameras as well. So uh, what do you think about that? Okay, so, I'll <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, let me take that in two parts, which is um, I am a total data fangirl, not technical, but like I, I really do believe in the power of data. I also do, do not believe that data is neutral, um, and it matters very much what data sets you're looking at. So one of the things around building models based on big data, and, and big data is usually like, you look at a large data set and try and find the patterns, right? And then you can try and predict based on, I, I know this pattern exists, and I might see that pattern again, and so I can draw some conclusions from seeing the pattern again. So in not just the policing area, but in decisions about providing credit, and decisions about making loans, and decisions about providing educational opportunity, if, if your previous patterns were infused with some sort of bias, whether it's racial 
or gender or any other bias, and then you code for finding the pattern again and replicating it as these will be good students, these will be good credit risks, these may be good or, or, or likely suspects. You are replicating the bias as opposed to trying to figure out other ways of identifying potential criminal activity or, or, or good credit uh, creditors. So, so that, that's one of the problems that, that I think I, can't I we seen. Can't we just, un I mean, we can undo some of that bias. That's just kind I, of bad analysis, right? I, I, think so, I think that's right. And, but I think it also means that, A, you who wrote the code, do you know what kind of data it's running on, right? So there, there's that problem, I, I think. And, and I think it requires a fairly sophisticated understanding of what your data is to begin with so that that's you understand how you, how you draw the, the, that out, right? That's like, always true, it, yes. Absolutely, and so that, that, which is exactly the open data project of why we need to make sure better understanding of the data sets to begin with happens. Let me go to the, the video stuff because, um, so I sit on the board of Witness, which is a, a nonprofit organization that was actually started, gosh, almost 25 years ago, um, uh, right after the Rodney King incident. And, and it was started because the Rodney King incident brought to bear like the power of a citizen videoing some sort of governmental abuse and how that can change everything. Um, while we still sit with many of the problems that we saw in the Rodney King incident, um, the thing that's changed in 25 years is, Witness at one point was literally buying cameras and shipping them to human rights workers around the world. Now, everybody has a camera. <laughs> so so the, the challenges of validating video and knowing that you have good underlying data, valid data, is, is a problem. Um, and, and now the, the White House and, and others have sort of taken on that body cams might be able to solve some of the abuses we're seeing. Um, I was actually last night uh, having dinner with um, Kevin Moore, who videoed the beating of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, and Ramsey Orta, who videoed the beating of Eric Garner in, in New York. Um, and they were telling me how after Ferguson, um, their organization actually raised money uh, on a Kickstarter project or a GoFundMe project. Um, they raised $9,000 to make sure that everyone in Michael Brown's neighborhood had a body cam so that they could ensure that those feds were not going to get harassed in, in the very turbulent days uh, following the Ferguson incident. Um, so body cams, we know they do something in, in terms of your interaction with the police and how the police behave with you and how you might behave with the police. Um, the notion of like having all police around the country have body cams, there's something really powerful in there, but it can't just be done like hand them a can and let them go at it. Because here are some, some of the questions you want to ask. When does it get turned on? When does it get turned off? Who gets to validate that this happened at this time? Um, how is it used as evidence? And, and, and so, so just sort of taking it to some of the conversation we've been having, if we're not gonna have those cameras on the police on all the time, because that means every interaction, like if you ask the police for directions down the street, you're gonna, have a, you're gonna be on a camera that's now gonna get archived, that seems like a bad idea. Um, so maybe the police should only turn it on when they feel like they're in a difficult situation. Well, so how are we gonna trigger that? And is that triggered with some sort of racial, gender, other bias? How do we know? Um, when do you turn it off? Do I only keep it on on public streets? If I chase a suspect and follow them into a private home, should I turn it off for the safety of the people in the private home? 
Lots of times police are asked to intervene in domestic violence situations. There is more than just a perpetrator there. There's a victim there as well who deserves some privacy. So like there's a bunch of questions around video that the police need to figure out how we're gonna do this responsibly. And then somehow we gotta get it to the citizens who are also filming them and figure out how they're gonna do it responsibly. Um, so like the video thing is really important right now and extraordinarily complicated. Yeah, I would just, I mean, the, the speed at which we're seeing kind of the, and I think it's slowed down hopefully a little bit, but the it is actually pretty terrifying to me for a while, the, the speed at which we were seeing kind of rapid uh, body cam adoption and this the notion that this is some type of kind of solve-all panacea, uh, when we actually still know very, very, very little about a effectiveness um, but then just generally, how does that affect, uh, you know, the economics of a particular department? Uh, one of the things that we saw in Ferguson on the DOJ report was uh, this kind of, uh, you know, informal taxation system. of there, It wasn't, you know, the, the, the high-level kind of police abuses of uh, citizen interaction, but it was the low-level day-to-day misdemeanor uh, crimes and really petty offenses where people were getting fined as a way to kind of... Uh, uh, supplement the, the the decrease in taxes in the municipality, and as you talk about layering more more and more expensive, uh, not only systems but data retention systems, you have to. I think that that economics piece is, is really critical. Um, and, and you know, Thomas and I were talking earlier. I mean, this privacy piece is, is extremely difficult when you talk about you know the whole the whole kind of um, you know uh, power of the video around uh, you know um, uh, Eric Garner, for instance. Uh, but but others, uh, you know, Walter Scott, et cetera, was that the, the video was available to the public, right? And then you come into this piece of like, well, how do, we're not just going to, hopefully not just have all video available to the public, but then that decision of who arbitrates that, right? Um, and, and is that someone that we, you, you can trust to, to do that? I mean, it's, it's to a smaller level, it's, it's still there in the, your traditional data sets. We, we have conversations with departments now. Should, we, should a department release an officer's name? Should a partner release uh, you know, a, a suspect or victim's name uh, as part of the data set? So those are open questions that just get multiplied 100x when you're talking about uh, officer responding to a scene of a crime and all of you, all of your faces are in it, right? And so how do we deal with release of that, of that footage uh, post-incident? We have, uh, we're really fortunate in that Cambridge has badass from MIT to help, <laughs> right? And uh, uh, New York City has an analytics unit and so forth, but uh, not everyone has those kinds of resources either on the data science side or on the privacy side, you know, what are the, what are the good rules of the road, which uh, get very complicated very very quickly, and it was almost easier when the you know we had some chain of custody and some kind of basic privacy protections around certain types of crimes. But now this is getting really complicated really quickly, where you need in some cases data science expertise, in other cases uh, some real uh, thoughtfulness on on privacy, and uh, I think this is a real opportunity for. Uh, the the uh, federal and state governments to collaborate uh, and academia to collaborate with with local police departments in terms of playbooks and best practices uh, to convene and, and share those those best practices and and uh, kind of uh, thinking around data science and privacy. We have such a cool audience here. We have uh, folks from uh, police departments, including uh, Captain in the New York Police Department, uh, uh, someone from Cambridge uh, Police Department. We have criminologists, we have just some really awesome students. So rather than just keep it to the panel, I thought we would open it up and have a wider discussion. 
And so why don't we uh, start with uh, Thomas over there? Sure. And just could, could, could you uh, stand up and speak up? Sure. Just apologies in advance. I, I have to leave in 10 minutes. So, uh, but I just wanted to uh, sort of ask the panel a question uh, that Clarence and I were discussing. And maybe specifically, Nicole, with your earlier example. So the work that you cited in Chicago that's done by Andrew Papakristos with this social networking analysis, uh, it sounds a little scary, but it's actually, uh, many people think, one of the most promising ways to save young black men from homicide. Basically by mapping their associates using public data of who they were arrested with in the past. One of the phenomenons that we have is that when, some, when someone is shot or injured, um, often there is immediate retaliation, often within hours. And so what the effort behind that is, how do we get ahead of this? How do we reach those people, talk to them, say, you're in danger, please, next 24, 48 hours, you have to lay low, those things. So it sounds scary, but it can also be incredibly promising. So the broader question is, uh, the public wants us to be effective in reducing crime. They want us to be, uh, uh, improve our measures of legitimacy and reduce the crime burdens. Don't stop every young black and brown man. Don't fine every person for, for uh, don't keep all of these people in uh, jail uh, pending, uh, pending trial. Um, they, want, they want less crime. They want less burden of over-enforcement, but they're very uncomfortable with data. And as a professional who's been in this for 20 years and working on this, look, you can't have all three. We've got to get more comfortable. We've got to find a way to get more comfortable with the effective use of data. And so how do we break through with this, this conversation about privacy and, and get people comfortable so we can deliver the things that they want? Okay, I'll take a shot, but you may have had more recent conversations than I have about the, so, so, um, the Code for America Summit happened a month ago, I think, out in California, and they actually had a similar panel where they, but they brought in um, some police chiefs to talk about what they wanted. Here's what they thought would be most effective to try and break through that problem, which is they need everybody to come to the table. So they do. They need the police chiefs to come to the table, but they need um, policymakers to be there to think about how to set some rules. They need the community to come to the table to talk about. What is it that concerns them? Because it's not, I'm not, it's not that I'm worried about data generally, right? And this actually came out in the big data report a lot, which is like, it's not that people are particularly worried about you having data, it's the loss of control that comes with you having it, which is, um, I don't want, the, if you ask them, like, what are you worried about? It, they won't, they'll say privacy, but then they'll say, I don't want to be discriminated against because of what you think about my data. I don't want to lose opportunities or to be denied benefits because of what you think about my data. So, so it's, it's, while they say things like privacy, what they actually mean is like discrimination and other bad acts, which we know are bad, right? So I think part of it is getting folks to come to the table and having an honest discussion about what is exactly the concern that you're having. Now you will have some folks, I think, um, I think you'll get certain civil liberties folks who will tell you that the government monitoring open net social networks like Facebook is a chilling effect on the individual freedom and autonomy of people. And so that's a value. And, and some of what we want out of our police force has to be balanced against 
that as a, as a value. Um, but that to me, in my work at Google, at Twitter, like we never solve problems unless we bring everybody to the table to talk about the needs that they have. And, and I think this is no different in that sense, which is technology people, policymakers, police uh, and law enforcement, plus the community um, as a set to break through that. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, I don't think it's going to be kind of this overnight proposition, right? I mean, and I, and I think you're, I mean, you identified the tension perfectly, right? You know, <laughs> I don't care who you are, right? You want to feel safe in your community, period. Unfortunately, in a lot of uh, minority communities, right, it's, uh, it's not necessarily I don't just feel safe because of the crime in my community. I don't feel safe because of the police in my community as well. And it is, and it is going to take a long time um, to even start to kind of rebuild that trust that we've lost not only over the past couple of years, but like decades, centuries, right? Um, and so I think that that's the piece of, like Nicole said, I mean, educating people on, on, on what you're doing with my data, why we're doing this, uh, making that data uh, available, you know, the extent of which some, which I as a member of the community feel that you're hiding something from me, we, we are, we're already, you know, not going to be able to have a conversation. Um, and so that's, you know, again, this is just one piece of that, but that's partly what we're trying to do with this open data piece. Again, it's that, you know, people come to us all the time saying, oh, can we get the data? And it's like, I don't have the data, like the departments are releasing the data, it's people want to do analysis on it from a research perspective. That's fine. I mean, the, our core focus on this has been like, how do you use this to build trust such that when you are talking about doing those things, people don't have this initial reaction. I mean, one of the things, uh, so there's, there's, there's releasing the data, then there's like, how do you use that to engage? And we've been working with a lot of our departments um, to then once data sets are released to work with some of the civic tech community, but then also how do you bring in citizens to help them understand the data? Um, we had a really powerful event in New Orleans uh, where the uh, city police chief uh, uh, showed up to a hackathon event in which uh, a, a group of youth coders were actually the learning how to code on a police data set. So you had the city police chief there, several officers as well, the city CIO, all there in the same room having this conversation, talking about what this data means and, and, and the like. Um, and, and I think it has to start there with those types of conversations. Um, you know, because in the instance that you're talking about, even if, you know, I may be, you know, the victim of a, of a homicide uh, within the next 24 hours, who's going to deliver that message that has credibility with me? It's, it's certainly not uh, Chicago PD, right, if I'm, if I'm in that community. Um, and so I think even, even beyond the analysis, like, how do you bridge those conversations? Okay. Good uh, start. Let's go over here. Okay. Um, I have a question um, in regards to the role that you see traditional media playing with um, technology and data. Um, I asked the question from the lens of being a representative from the Associated Press, and we've seen an increase in companies, organizations interested in their archive, which we license for data projects. That's a, it's a great question, and in fact, we have a, a few members uh, from the media in the room, and Shorenstein Center, one of the research centers uh, sponsoring today is also uh, focused on the media. So I'm wondering uh, about that particular question, but also uh, uh, about uh, the certain biases in, in media as well, which I think uh, tends tends to uh, play a really important role here in, in fostering this national conversation, um, but also tends, tends to kind of have a certain lens on everything here too. Yeah. I, I mean, I can, I can talk about it a little bit. I mean, I think it's, um, when we start, 
thinking about who are the primary, we were having this conversation before, who's the primary audience for a lot of this data? Um, and, you know, you talk to departments and they'll say, oh, you know, the public, the public. <laughs> um, and, and the reality is, is that, you know, there's a very special kind of subset of, of, of people, of, of citizens who, um, honestly like care about the data on a day-to-day basis right like there's I think there's a layer of people that just want to know that the department isn't hiding something and beyond that fine uh, but they then depend on uh, journalists to actually do that verification right and, it, and I think a lot of times are right obviously media right <laughs> our perceptions around the, the the department is is almost fully formed um, you know you think about it, a lot of people don't actually have contact with the police departments on a, on a day-to-day basis, uh, and hopefully not not too much uh, at all in, in a negative way. Uh, and so a lot of like how we think about, you know, our relationship and the trust in, in the departments is is almost entirely filtered through through media narratives. And, and, and I think... And entertainment. And entertain, and entertainment. I started well, off. That's media, though. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> entertainment and, and media are probably, for a, for a subset of Americans, Kind of uh, influences kind of their perception of the criminal justice system. Yeah, and I and I think uh, you know it's even more important now to actually have that educated voice. Uh, you know, this kind of data journalism has been kind of a, uh, a newly coined term, if you will. But it's it's critically important to be able to have that kind of uh, filter in a very educated way to to inform the public of of what's being put out there and actually a really critical piece in holding departments accountable um, for, for, what's, for, what, for what they're doing. Um, and I would say both on the negative and positive end, right? Um, and, and we don't see, um, to be able to, not don't balance it out if it's not there, but to be able to report on, on the good stuff too, right? Um, I'm not sure, so I heard two sort of different questions in, from you. One was like, how should the media use data? And the other was, how should we think about the media sort of publishing the data to the public as well. And then there was an archives question, which I wasn't quite sure I understood. So let me, let me try to take the first two. Uh, I think that the media needs to approach the data in the same way we were talking about with the same level of responsibility uh, that, that we're advising on, which is to, some of the video that is going up looks really great as TV or as your front page. Um, and I think you have to be really critical on what you're finding as uploaded to data. The, the work that I do with Witness, they don't just do US-based uh, human rights work. Um, they also do stuff in Syria and Africa and that sort of thing. And they actually had an incident where um, someone had uploaded to YouTube a video that purported to be uh, the massacre, in uh, uh, Syrian rebels massacring a, a village uh, in, in Aleppo. Um, and it, was it went everywhere, it was terribly viral. And then some people did some more digging, and it turned out that was actually two years previous in Palestine. But the, like to the Western world, we couldn't tell the difference. So, so being critical about what it is you see passed around is actually super important. And the media as the primary distributor to most of the world, it, it, it's extraordinarily important that you're validating where you're seeing that video from. Um, uh, so, the, so that's their use of it. I also think like figuring out what you make prominent versus not. So this was also a conversation that I was having with some of the community activists. There have been a lot of police-related uh, shootings in the last year, like many of them. But they don't all rise to the level of national prominence. And frankly, the community activists can't figure it out. Like they're not quite sure 
Why do some videos get all the attention and some don't? Um, and it's not necessarily racial. Sometimes it's racial, but not always. Um, it seems to sometimes have to do with community activists on the ground who are actively propagating and getting to media to find them. Um, so there's also sort of a, I think that one of the things that the media and all of us need to be cognizant about is like, we might see one very um, profound incident that's real, but for that we actually should be looking at it in the context of the 278 other shootings that happened that month, right? So um, I, I think that's also an important part of it. Okay, uh, right here. Um, so you, the word trust has come up a lot, and I'm curious about, like, are there times when the use of big data, or particularly things like body cams and video, really, I mean, that, that can really cut against engendering trust between community and police, or community and media, as I think the, this week in Missouri, there was, that was a super interesting case where there was an incredible amount of tension around around documentation. And so I guess I'm curious, like, do you guys find yourselves sometimes feeling like the things are that can work at odds with each other? Like that collecting all this information sometimes actually might not like you might end up with as not as good of a result. Like that it, or that it, you can channel it in ways to generate trust or it can work against that too. Well, okay, so so let, let me try to address that a little bit. I think, um, so so first of all, with the body cams, the body cams actually changed the circumstance. So, you know, I was I was at the uh, LAPD, and they were saying that once you, basically that the police see a situation that's not so good, and then they say, give me a second, I'm going to turn on my camera. And then all of a sudden it diffuses. So it actually changes the way you do things. So, the, so certain kinds of technologies actually change the, the data. It's changing the circumstance. Um, the, the second answer I want to give is that each new technology um, can be helpful or you can use it in ways that are not helpful. And I don't think that that has to do with what necessarily um, how much data you're collecting. If you use the data in the right way, I mean, the more data, the better, right? So, uh, but, but you, have to, you do have to evaluate each technology. So for instance, for the recidivism scoring, we were, we were trying very hard not to put in socioeconomic status indicators because we were worried that that tool would get used for sentencing right we don't want to put people in jail longer because of something that was not anything to do with the crimes they've committed right um, and or you know like you don't want to put someone in jail longer because of like race or like poverty or something like that um, so that's an example of how how technology can be used well or, or not so well, depending. But I don't, I don't think you should try to limit the amount of data you're collecting in, in the sense, I mean, if, it depends what, uh, what uh, technology you're going to apply to that data. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. If you're, if, you're, if you're collecting data that could be dangerous and you use it in a way that's not dangerous, that's different than if you're collecting it and it's, it's dangerous data and you're using it for something that's dangerous. Yeah, I guess I, I was, to answer your question, I say we'll, we'll see. I think there's like, again, there's just so many open questions around kind of body cam and, and the data. A, you know, and you can almost break it up into different chunks, right? Like there, there's, you know, active research around, uh, you know, these types of chilling effects that we see in terms of police citizen interactions once the camera goes on, right? And so that's one certain, like, you can maybe look at trust in that vacuum. And maybe it's not, maybe it's not that I trust the officer anymore, but now I, I'm kind of a little bit more 
assured about the situation because I know there's some kind of third-party mediator there um, as if we look at this technology in that way. Um, but then there's a whole other you know, piece I think you were alluding to around like, okay, well, what's, what's happening with this footage or this data on the back end? How's it being used? And, um, you know, I don't know. I think it goes back to this piece again. It's like, do I trust the institution and the entity that is, that is collecting this data, right? Do I trust, um, do I feel confident about the policies that are in place and who's going to have their hands on it and what they're doing with it? If I find out that, you know, we're now using this, this footage as well, right, to target certain uh, communities. Maybe I don't trust the department anymore. Uh, so I just, I, I think it's, you know, there's a large and active ongoing body of research around, like, a lot of aspects around this, and, and a part of that I just think we'll see. I mean, not to, and, and right, I keep throwing this word trust out there. Like, don't ask me to, <laughs> to, 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 to give you a measure, a good measure for, for trust, right? I mean, that's, that's a difficult problem that folks have worked on for a while as well, too. So I wanted to actually get the perspective of the police department. Uh, not to ask you to speak for the entire <laughs> the entire community, uh, but I thought it would be really helpful to get your perspective and question, of course, as well. Uh, good morning. My name is Dan Wagner. I'm a lieutenant uh, right here with the Cambridge Police Department. I'm on leave absence attending graduate school um, at the Kennedy School. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to partner with Cynthia Rudin over a couple of years to develop uh, some models around crime, uh, one of which she presented. Um, I think that fundamental to this discussion and the point I think that almost everyone has raised or asked is the the issue of trust in police. And I think that the point that Cynthia made, the more data the better. In general, that's absolutely true. The more that we can be making data-driven decisions to use evidence-based practices to try and prevent crime and reduce harm, the more we should be doing that, the more people in the community should be demanding that of, of their governments and of their police departments. I think the question is, what are the what is the relationship between a local police department and a local community? What level of trust? is there between the community and the police department? How much open dialogue is there about what sort of data are we, get, are we capturing and what are we doing with that? And I think that's most important. What's the purpose? What are we using the data for, right? The Chicago example is a fascinating example because I've heard a lot of criticism of that. If social network analysis is being conducted to then have some presumption of suspicion or guilt or lower some, you know, level uh, of for criminal to establish a criminal predicate to try to search a house to try to um, arrest somebody right is it, if it's used solely for law enforcement I think that that's typically not good I think if it's used truly to try to prevent the next bad thing from happening then I think that that's really important and I think that having the trust between the police department and the community to ensure that this in Chicago we really are trying to prevent it and I don't know what the relationship is with the or exactly what they're doing with the data, so I can't speak to that. It's really for Chicago and, and the people of Chicago to talk about. Um, that if we're trying to prevent crime and prevent the next homicide, and even if it's to say, hey, you know, we have evidence that shows that networks of people, if there's a homicide, are, are likely to be involved on one side or another. Maybe they're likely to commit the next homicide or be a victim of it. We want to prevent it either way. So we go and talk to somebody and say, hey, you know, you're at risk of actually doing the next shooting or being the victim of the next shooting, we want to try to prevent that from happening. Um, I think that is is very important. I think having the trust and the relationship with the community, right, who's delivering the message, I think, ideally, if it can be partnered, you know, community, informal community leaders and cops working together to deliver that message, I think there's a lot of value there. Um, but having that relationship between the community and, and, and the police and the ongoing dialogue, because what the public is willing to, um, 
to is comfortable with the police capturing and using today in Cambridge is different than some community in another part of the country and it's different it's going to be different a year from now in Cambridge so you have to have that on, ongoing dialogue but it, it's all about the trust and, and thinking about what's the purpose and I think the real purpose of police is to prevent crime and, and so does the Cambridge Police Department monitor uh, social networks? Um, so we certainly look at social media, yep. right? Um, we were, we don't, I was at a conference in Florida and the Sheriff's Department there was in charge of uh, basically, you know, basically municipal policing for, for most of the county, was talking about how, uh, and I, I forget the word they used, but it was like backing, right? So, so they <laughs> suck up all kinds of, they subscribe to some, some private service, they, they capture all kinds of social media data, right, and store it, you know, in perpetuity. And I'm like, you know, that's, I can't, couldn't fathom the people of Cambridge being okay with that. And so we, we don't do that in Cambridge. Um, <laughs> it's, done, it's done elsewhere, whether or not it's done with the public's, you know, uh, knowledge and, and acceptance. You know, ideally, there's some transparency and conversation at the community level, and if that, uh, ideally, I said that that the people of Florida or of that county in Florida have have uh, participated in, in, and that may be the the value of the of that uh, community. What about body cameras? How how is Cambridge uh, Police Department thinking about that? So I'm a little bit out of the loop as I'm on a leave absence yep. now, so I don't know where the department officially stands on that. Um, I can say that we haven't rolled out body cameras. Mm -hmm. How do you feel personally about the about the idea of having a, a, a body camera on you? So I think that it's fine. I think that it, it's difficult, right? It's it, many cops may not be sort of initially comfortable with it. it. Depends on the purpose of it, right? They're in policing, oftentimes our own internal uh, bureaucracy uh, can be challenging. So so cops aren't going to want to wear body cameras if they know that some supervisor is going to jam them up by looking at the video and saying, "Hey, you know, you did something." something, some little thing you did wrong, you know, and using it as a means to try to uh, administer internal punishment. If it's to, to scrutinize, you know, use of force, um, I think that that's certainly appropriate. Um, as police, we are, you know, we're, the public entrusts us with a huge amount of responsibility. And we have the authority to deprive somebody of their freedom. We have the authority to use deadly force. With that, we should expect a high level of scrutiny and transparency. That can be difficult and uncomfortable, um, but that's part of our job. And, have to learn uh, to accept it. So I think the use of body cameras is fine. I think it'll be interesting to see, I, think I have two sort of <clears throat> thoughts about it. One is, uh, it'll be interesting to see as the technology develops, what happens with body cameras. Because it won't be long from now that theoretically a cop could wear a body camera and walk down the street and have you know some headpiece in and facial recognition software could be running and it could be saying, you know, Hey, you know, you just walked by Kevin. You know, um, he has a warrant. You know, to arrest him, uh, or it could be right geotagging dates and times and locations based on facial recognition. So that's that technology is not in the distant horizon. Right. So, I think it already exists. Yeah, it's <laughs> predominantly yeah. in the defense capability. I mean, we use we actually tend to yeah. violate privacy a lot more or the kind of cultural norms outside of outside of the U.S. where we say this is. In a, in a war zone for the warfighter, we're much more comfortable using that type of, and I, I don't have, have any knowledge of specifics, but those types of, of technologies where we're using biometrics and collecting a lot more data uh, um, in, in war zones, uh, in, 
I just think it's interesting that, that people haven't been talking about that, and I think people should be, right? Because we don't want to talk about it after the police departments have started to do that, yep. right? The conversation should happen ahead of time. And then my other thought is that it's not a panacea, right? Body cameras are important, but that's body cameras aren't the solution to improving trust between the police and the community. And that's personally what I would like to hear much more talk and conversation about is solutions to improve trust between the community, to improving policing outcomes, to working together collaboratively with the community towards you know harm and, and crime prevention. Um, and that's been sort of a, been slightly disappointed the lack of, of some of that sort of conversation um, at the national level and the focus on you know what are really anecdotes in, in the news, you know, horrible images, um, uh, videos on the news, and, and, and that's just <coughs> aren't talking enough about solutions and what are the underlying causes for some of that. The problem, I think that there are problems in, and uh, the, my last point, I think that there are problems in policing, and I think that the problem is not the young black or brown man and the cop on the street. I think there are larger, more complicated social, economic, cultural issues in our country that that is one symptom of it, and it's a serious symptom, and I think that that problem in and of itself needs to be looked at, but absent a larger conversation about about, uh, about crime and race and, uh, and social class in our society, uh, that's some of the conversation. That I, I think that's right, and I, I think here's what I, um, here's the conversation I would like to see, it in, and it's, it's slightly reframing, which is like, we are currently using our criminal justice system as a replacement for our social service system, right? And and so like so in Miami-Dade County, they were able to identify like 97 what they called heavy utilizers of the system. They they 97 people amounted to 37,000 hours of jail time over five years. Right? They are heavy utilizers, and for the most part, they were people who had substance abuse problems, who were on the edge of poverty, so they were doing small-time property crimes, that they had mental health issues. And so uh, Miami-Dade actually did what we, we think could be a model, which is they created healthcare workers who were si worked side by side with the police, who were there both on the scene and at the jail. They had other sort of social service networks that were there to help the people who were being identified by the cops so that it, over four years, they had nearly 50,000 calls to respond, but they only arrested like 7,800 people. So that's the kind of thing where Again, like, let's get the numbers, right? To have the conversation about like, we're paying into the wrong system to solve a problem which is ultimately not a criminal problem. Yes, I agree. We didn't, I can talk to you more about offline, but we've done a similar project in Cambridge. We used extensive data to predict future risk of harm, created what we call the social harm index, partnered with social service providers, community members, clergy, and then develop proactive interventions with the people at the top of that list to try to prevent them from continuing to commit harm. Can I get my social harm number from the Uber? No, with Uber, you can now get your rating. Five been, stars. I don't know if you guys know this, but you can now see kind of what, as a rider for Uber, but it, it, it actually raises the set of questions of uh, if, the, if the police department is saying, you know, you get rated as, 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 a, as a Uber rider, and you can actually now in the app kind of see what your score is. Uh, but it, it raises this, uh, it's kind of a, a, a flip uh, reaction to that. But it is this, oh, this question of could you, could you actually FOIA that information and see that the police department has scored me as high, high 
likelihood of need of social services and so forth. So it raises some really interesting questions and, around. And we provided the, those data to a small group of the people within the community who we were working with. We certainly didn't publish it um, on our website, but yep. I think that that's not an unreasonable thing for us to consider. And you probably gave some FOIA ideas for the members of the media here. Um, <laughs> the, score, the score went up a little bit when we found a video jaywalking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a fantastic question. I'm going to parse it a little bit if I'm yeah. take the moderator's uh, privilege, uh, because you asked about uh, new software tools and you framed it in the context of open source and civic tech and free. Uh, and I think that's one piece to it. Uh, but what, what I think what we're, we're talking about here is is great software that has great user experiences for uh, police officers, for for members of the criminal justice. Uh, a system for victims, for people who are proceeding through it, right, and and for the public, right, and so, you know, are there opportunities for uh, uh, great software, both both open source uh, from the civic tech world and from private sector entrepreneurs, and uh, I'm seeing both, just personally in my capacity as, as a venture capitalist. Uh, so just as an example, uh, I'm not my firm is invested in it, but Mark Forty Three is a uh, Harvard, uh, I think they're four or five years out of college, and they are building uh, software for police officers. Uh, there's other, there's other uh, if you kind of expand it to include emergency management, and, and uh, there's an HBS uh, startup that's working uh, Rapid SOS. There's a whole bunch of, of entrepreneurs who are seeing this as a vertical. Uh, and you mentioned Google and Palantir. Those are distinctly not open source platforms, right? Uh, 
Uh, now, they may use a lot of open source tools inside, and they're, they're fantastic and interesting organizations with really leading tech. Uh, but I think we're seeing it from, from both sides. We are seeing the civic tech world uh, and the Code for America uh, folks who are, who are coming into this space. Uh, but we're also seeing great for-profit entrepreneurs, and I think that's fantastic in the same way that education and healthcare uh, have needed this kind of disruption. Uh, you need world-class entrepreneurs to come in and build, build great software. It does raise this question of uh, anytime someone is selling software to the public sector is, uh, you know, how much money should the public sector pay for something like this? Um, and uh, I would argue that the public sector, whether it's education or healthcare, criminal justice, social services, already pays for a lot of lousy software. We should pay for less lousy software and pay for great software that is really designed with the user in mind. And if that user is a police officer on the street, if it's a police captain who's managing a precinct, if that's, if that's a, uh, a member of the public trying to understand and keep the, the police department accountable, uh, whoever that user is, it should be designed with those, those uh, user-centered design and human-centered design principles. Uh, and ideally that you have enough entrepreneurs uh, uh, that are in the space, both for-profit and non-for-profit, that are uh, competing, so that, and that provides some, some price pressure on the kind of cost. Uh, and then we get off some of these, these legacy solutions, which uh, oftentimes don't have the sophisticated data analytics that, that Cynthia works on, or the kind of uh, um, privacy protections or privacy thoughtfulness that, that uh, uh, Nicole has worked on at Twitter and Google and thinking about how do you actually architect this into the, the system from the beginning rather than as an afterthought. So, sorry to take the moderator's break, but what you guys uh, Well, I just want to say, I mean, excellent question, excellent answer. Um, and just like, um, you know, kind of add, adding a, a little bit more to that. Um, and like Nick said, I think there's a lot of different pieces to, to what, you, what you asked there. Um, so. The open source piece, I mean, I, I think that's fine, that's great. We should see more more um, solutions like that. I, I think once you start talking about putting that type of software within or system within a department, uh, really what the department wants is not necessarily the, the technology per se, but what is really critical for them is the uh, technical assistance um, around implementation, around maintenance, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think, you know, back to Nick's point, uh, uh, a lot of times departments just don't know what questions to ask up front. And I think a, a piece of that is, is education on, you know, they enter into horrible contracts, right, around where they have to pay for their own data to come back to them in a certain form and things like that. Uh, one of the things that we did early on, and Lynn initiated this around the police data initiative, uh, was working with, um, so the president announced the initiative in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, Lynn helped uh, put forth a, basically a Camden uh, uh, tech team based on kind of the USDS model of let's get some people who are really knowledgeable in this space. Camden was getting ready to procure a record man records management system. They had like something like 47 different systems, legacy systems kind of going all within the department at this point in time. Um, and so this team just went up there and talked to the uh, assistant chief there, uh, basically armed him with the right questions to ask his vendors as they were going in this procurement process. Um, 
pointed out to him some of the things that he should probably he should probably know. Um, and I think that that like kind of user education um, and empowering the user, the departments to ask those questions and get what they want. Um, we we is, is critically important. We we did kind of a pre-event at the White House um, prior to the launch of the Police Data Initiative, where we brought together. Um, data scientists, police chiefs, uh, civic technologists, et cetera, just to kind of sit for a day and talk about some of their uh, hard issues. And kind of time and time again, we kept hearing from the police departments of, you know, any little, tw like we can't get the vendors to design software that we that is useful to us. Because like any little tweak they want to do is like another 10,000 here, another 10,000 there. Um, so I think open source is a piece to it, but I think, you know, just good, credible players in the space um, where you have your arming departments with the right questions to ask and then folks who are being responsive and you can set up uh, a kind of competitive marketplace for that, I, I think we'd be in a lot better place. I will say too, we've been working on the police data initiative, we've been working with uh, some of those vendors who, um, you know, one of them is uh, IA Pro. I don't know if uh, Cambridge uses them, but their um, uh, internal accountability system that's used in a, a large majority of departments across the country. And uh, I think Code for America, Esri, and Socrata went to them and said, hey, we would love to build a tool on top of your uh, uh, software to, to basically publish this data directly. Uh, and they were like, Sure, we didn't know that this was actually that anyone really cared about this data, um, and so I think they're like, and we we were actually quite surprised because we thought it was like you know evil corporations trying to like hold this data back. It was part of it was just having that conversation. So I think there are some inroads to be made there, and quite frankly, it's in the business interest. I think more and more of of companies to be a bit more forthcoming with with allowing folks to access this data. Um, but I think the, it's a big education piece in, in, in really putting, like you said, the user at the center of, and the, the departments here at the center of this. Okay, we have time for, for one last uh, question here. Uh, the title of this is Criminal Justice in the Age of Big Data. We talked about primary audiences and priority audiences before. We have not mentioned uh, what I think is a critical audience to understand big data, and that is judiciary. Mm -hmm. uh, because they're yep. making the ultimate decisions on motions to suppress and, and maybe budget fights between a city council on where the money's going to go for cameras and other things. So I'm wondering what's being done if you think enough is being done to fund the effort to educate the judiciary on these issues because the demographics of the judiciary are such that they're a lot older and they really have a lot of catching up to do, but I think they earnestly probably want to involve it be an understanding of it. So I know too. one project, but I think there are more. Uh, but one of the ones, it, it's in this pretrial assessment period, right? So judges are kind of bound with a lot of restrictions on how they decide who goes into, uh, who, who gets bail, who goes who goes to jail after the first instance, and how that goes. Um, there, there's a the Arnold Foundation is working on a pretrial assessment tool. One of the things with deciding whether or not someone should be given bail, go to, go to jail, whatever, is, is usually it's a pretty costly process because it's based not only on like what's the current case, what's their prior criminal history, but also usually an interview. So you gotta have staff, and you gotta like sit down in person, you gotta figure out what the real risk is to the community. Too, too costly, too time intensive to really do effectively. This assessment tool they're looking at, and, and they validated it over, uh, over 100 jurisdictions, I think, um, is, is that it, uh, asks nine questions based on what's already in the record, your current, your current case and your prior criminal history. And in the validation, they've identified, like, you can actually do this without having to do the interview. And it's been stripped for gender and, and race as well. So, so it's, a, it's a fairly neutral assessment. And it does, a better, it does as good a job as we're doing now, if not better, in sort of determining 
fail, failure to likelihood of failure to appear, likelihood of a new crime, likelihood of a new violent crime. Um, and, and that's a useful tool for judges, right, to sort of get them back, using the data to help them make better decisions, not kind of based on their instinct of who's sitting in front of them. Um, Wait, sorry, can, can I, because I'm, I, I, so let me just, I'll, yeah, you, you probably okay. know. Sorry, that's, so that's exactly what my um, recidivism prediction tools are designed to do. They're mm -hmm. exactly designed to help judges and lawyers um, do very quick assessments based on data uh, as to what the probability is of recidivism. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. I will say to both of those, though, and I think to the heart of your question, is the education piece and how do you get judges to actually use it. <laughs> and I uh, sat at a uh, table, this is actually Lynn's event, I keep bringing Lynn up, uh, <laughs> but this is Lynn's event at the White House a couple weeks ago, and I sat at a table with judges talking about this particular issue, um, and there was a large frustration around, and these were like some of your most progressive across the country in terms of using this type of data to inform their decision making, but they had a really big frustration in terms of actually getting their colleagues to actually pay attention to this. And, and you're talking about folks who have, you know, in their mind, have the expertise, have been doing this for years, decades, in some instances again. And it is, you know, what was impressed upon me, it is critically important um, to, uh, as to who is delivering that message, uh, particularly to that, you know, kind of class or, or section of the criminal justice system. Um, there's still quite a ways to go, even if we make the advances around um, showing that this, this data uh, is useful and you can actually have kind of better long-term impacts on the criminal justice system by doing things this way. Um, it's still, you know, and, and, and judges aren't the same way. Anytime someone has been doing something for years uh, and years in a certain way, is uh, it has to be a certain type of credibility in that message that they're delivering. Okay, so we, we have to wrap up, but just uh, I wanted to uh, finish with uh, thinking about uh, HKS students. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually teaching a class on tech and innovation in the spring, which is really cool, and I, I hope a lot of you guys uh, take, take that class. Uh, but what should, what should Harvard Kennedy School students uh, think about, uh, besides cross-registering and taking your, your classes <laughs> at, at MIT, uh, but how should they, if they're interested in, in, this, in this subject, which is really the collision of, of data science and criminal justice, right? Or which, uh, that's probably the best way to, to, to think about uh, today's topic. Uh, what should they study? What should they think about? And I'll ask also Clarence and Nicole to kind of give perspectives about uh, uh, federal service and, and uh, the U.S. Digital Service. But what, Cynthia, why don't we? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Dan, you said you were taking a, a kind of an interesting data class already, right? So. Uh, yeah. Yep, I'm taking uh, a challenging uh, analytic methods of policy class. Um, that's what that class or terrific class if anyone wants to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think that the, the I think, um, uh, Nicole, I think you had sort of said, what's the, what are the policy implications of data? So I think that that's really the, the, at the school of public policy is to think very clearly about what are the data that are available, should be available, could be available. What are the policy implications around, you know, collecting that data and their use? Yep. Yeah. Nice mix between actually getting some data analysis and data fluency skills, but then bringing it into the to the policy conversation and policy analysis context. I don't know if you guys want to wrap it up here. Um, I'll quickly just come back to a, a little bit of what I started with, and I think really, and if if it got lost up front, uh, apologies. 
But the the whole again one of the big formations of of police data initiative and one of the underlying principles was like just generally how do we provide more transparency into policing but the criminal justice system writ large it is a fairly opaque system people don't really understand it um, and there is just so many facets and aspects to it such that we deal at the level of the anecdote. Um, and so how can we use data um, to actually inform and, and educate people on the criminal justice system, policing writ large, using data, uh, and make it meaningful for people in their day-to-day -day experience? Um, so I come to you from California uh, and the tech companies. And, and so like I'm not a government person by, by training. Um, so here's how we think about it in the tech sector. Focus on the user. Right, it's all about the user. And so for me in, the pub in public policy, when, when I was doing my government work, who do you serve, right? And so when you come to these questions, whether you're coming to a student or as a policymaker, the question is who are you serving? And is the system you're designing, whether it's a data system or a public policy system, geared to the people we're supposed to serve? Um, and, and that to me is sort of the, the, the bedrock of, the, of why we should be doing what we're doing. I can't think of a better way to end there. So please uh, give a hand to the fantastic <laughs>